You're listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. For more teaching and resources, visit LargerStory.com. Well, this is the last of a four-part series on the book of Jeremiah. And um, to set the stage for what is going to prove to be a little bit of an unusual message for, I want to spend just a couple of minutes briefly reviewing the first three messages. So let me just do that, take a couple of minutes. In message number one, I approached the series. I knew I was going to do a series on Jeremiah, but I really wanted to understand what, what, what does God want us to get out of the book of Jeremiah, of the book of Jeremiah? What does his spirit put into the book that we want to draw out of the book? That's called exegesis. What do we get out of the book, what God intends us to get out of Jeremiah? And you recall, if you watched the first message, that it became clear to me from other people that tell me these things, that Jeremiah is the second longest book in the Bible. Psalms is the first longest. And then Isaiah looks like it should be the second because it has 66 chapters and Jeremiah just has 52. But there's more Hebrew words in Jeremiah's 52 chapters than there are in Isaiah's 66 chapters. So the question I was asking is, God, why did you devote the second longest book in all the 66 love letters to the story of a failed prophet? And that was the question I was asking. Um, But then my mind went a little bit different and I thought, well, God, I know, I can assume that when you inspired this book to be written, that you were answering certain questions. You, you want your people to know you're revealing yourself. You're revealing important things. So what are you revealing in the book of Jeremiah? Or to put it differently, what questions have you chosen to answer in the book of Jeremiah? So I read Jeremiah a couple of times, read some commentaries in Jeremiah, thought about it a lot. And I came up with three questions. I'm sure there's a lot of other questions that God deals with in this book. But three, in my mind, were very large, major uh, questions that the book of Jeremiah, I think, is answering. So I decided to devote the next three messages to each of those three questions. So that was the first message, just to set the stage for what may be the book of Jeremiah, what God is trying to say to us through the book of Jeremiah. And that was message one. And then in message two, I took on the first question. Let me tell you what the first question was. It was a why question. I've already introduced it rather uh, simply here. Let me say it again more formally. Here was question one that I'm answering now in message two. Why did God devote this lengthy book to telling the story of a man, a prophet, who led a disappointing, miserable life? What on earth is the point of that? Forty years of faithfully declaring the word of God and with no visible results, hardly by normal standards, a successful ministry. He had a tough life. You know this. He was ignored. He was rejected. He was hated. He endured two death threats. He was whipped. He was imprisoned. He was hung by a rope in a well that had no water in it, but it was a lot of mud in the bottom, and he was sinking into the mud. All that was going on in his ministry. Now, Jesus did tell his followers in John 16, 33, to expect many trials and sorrows. Well, he got a whole more bunch, a whole lot of trials and sorrows that I'm sure he had no expectation of. Um, so, uh, God, what what are you what what are you uh, what what are you doing in, in telling a, a, the longest book, second longest book in the Bible, to telling of the story of a man who has so much so many struggles? And what what I came to the conclusion in my second message was he was telling a story that God knew he was telling a story that are gonna that was gonna overcome everything in this world. Jeremiah, you're part of it, and in some sense, Jeremiah understood that, and for that reason. He never quit. He persevered. He endured. 
He was faithful in the middle of all those difficulties. And I heard the Spirit telling me and telling you that God values perseverance more than he values what we call results. That was the main idea of message two. Don't quit. There's no plan B to follow that's going to get you where you really want to go. Message three, I had a what question, had a why question for message two, and now message three, the second of the three questions, is a what question. And I wrote it out like this, and looking back on it, what was going on in the people who heard Jeremiah preach that prevented them from believing that Jeremiah was declaring the word of God? And could it be whatever it was then that kept them from hearing the word of God as the word of God, could that something, <clears throat> whatever it was in Jeremiah's day, be operating today in our culture? Are we hearing things in our Christian world that are not coming from God, <clears throat> and we like it, and when we hear things that are coming from God, we're not entirely drawn, and maybe we're repulsed to some degree by some of the apparent harshness that God sometimes speaks in. Well, that was the second question that I was looking at in message two, and I became very aware that Jeremiah had some real um, real competition. There were other there were other men that were recognized as prophets um, in the time of, of, of Judah that when Jeremiah was speaking, and they were saying, you have every right, you're entitled, you're God's chosen people, you're the Jews, you're the, you're the people God has chosen among all the other people, and he does love you, and so you, therefore, you can expect to have good times from God, a good life, blessings all the time. Jeremiah comes along and says, no, you've got to repent, you're sinful, God's holy. He hates sin. He doesn't hate you, but he hates your sin. And he wants you to repent. And if you do repent, then there will be the kind of blessings he wants to give. But if you don't, there's going to be major catastrophe. Now, of those two messages, who do you think people are going to listen to? The good times or the threat of catastrophe? Well, Jeremiah wasn't popular. That was message, um, message uh, two. Now, um, that was message three. I'm sorry. So what we're looking at now is the third question in message four. <clears throat> From a why question to a what question, and now to a who question. And I asked, as I asked this question in preparation for this final message, something just really occurred to me. I found myself wanting to get to know this man. I wanted to get to know what it was like to be Jeremiah back in those days. From his current perspective, where he is now, how is he looking back on those 40 miserable years of unsuccessful ministry? Is he still disappointed? What's going on? What's his perspective from where he is now? That was a question that was weighing on me and made me think a little bit. And I realized I'd, I'd like to get to know uh, this man. <clears throat> He's not just a cardboard cutout character. He's a real person, flesh and blood, just like you and me. And he felt all the things that were going on in his life. It was difficult. It was painful. Jeremiah, what was it like for you? What are you thinking about it now? So, in a flight of fancy, after reading again all 52 chapters, and I did in preparation for tonight, it's actually Jeremiah's autobiography. In one sense, that's what it is. I decided to approach Jeremiah, <clears throat> and I requested a short interview. He agreed. And he agreed to the interview, chuckling a little because he said he had plenty of time. So what follows is an edited version of that interview that I held with Jeremiah, edited because Jeremiah really loved to talk about his time on earth from heaven's perspective. So I had to edit it quite a bit. One other thing, 
Although the interview was recorded, a rather long-distance call, apparently Zoom was not permitted, I could hear Jeremiah clearly, <clears throat> but the permitted recording was pretty badly garbled. So I've taken the liberty of using my voice, not only for my questions, but also for Jeremiah's answers. So now, here's the interview. Together, let's meet Jeremiah. Well, Jeremiah, I appreciate your agreeing to this interview. I really do. But do you mind if I get to the right, right away to the first question? <laughs> not at all. I was always in a hurry, too, back when I was living down where you are now. Um, no, all right. Well, maybe I'll just back up a bit then and share something a little more personal as I start this interview. You've long been my favorite Old Testament character. I really think, as I thought about it, that I have taught more Bible lessons on the book of Jeremiah than on any other of the 66. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm really grateful, and I want to... What was that? Oh. Well, I would like to ask why, Larry. Why did you choose me as your, as your favorite Old Testament character? Why was I your favorite among so many other wonderful men and women who had more successful ministries than me? You know, it really is always fun for all of us up here to catch a glimpse of how we were used down there, to realize that a life lived for God was never a wasted life. It's kind of fun for us to reflect on that. <clears throat> no, I didn't have much to celebrate along that line when I was preaching in Judah. So yeah, I am eager to let you tell me how God got some real good out of what looked like a, 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 a wasted life, and it felt like a wasted life to me at times. So why was I your favorite, Larry? I'd like to know that. Well, your life down here, there's really one reason, Jeremiah, your life down here gave me the courage to believe that I actually could hang in there and finish well, no matter how empty, no matter how desperate, and no matter how alone, alone I sometimes feel. And I do struggle with a lot of things. I'm 75 years old now, Jeremiah, so I'll be close to meeting you in person, I suppose. But I've gone through a lot, and I'm still going through a lot. A lot of things are going on in me that are kind of difficult and not the, not the happiest. And you gave me the courage to believe that maybe I could continue. You never quit. How did you manage? Here, here's a question and all that, I guess. How did you manage to keep going for 40 miserable years? Well, do you remember what I said so long ago that's now recorded in what you call my ninth chapter in verse 1? Well, let me quote it for you because I know my Old Testament really quite well, especially the book that was all about me. If only my head, here's the verse, if only my head were a pool of water and my eyes a fountain of tears, I would weep day and night for all my people who have been slaughtered. That's what I said when I was ministering. It was tough. If I didn't have hope in a good God of love, I would have quit. Why not? And I'll tell you this, he sometimes made it hard for me to keep hope alive. He didn't make it easy for me to keep believing that he's good and that he's doing something good. He made it really quite difficult. Twice, actually two times, God instructed me something I never expected him to say. He said, stop praying for these people. Why would God ever tell a prophet to stop praying for the people to which he was ministering? That made no sense to me, but if God told me not to not pray, I guess I ought to not pray, and so I didn't. But I, I always, even though I didn't pray anymore under God's direction, I still had this rather stubborn, stubborn sense of hope that God was somehow moving somewhere really good. Now, I've heard that you folks 
down there, refer to chapters 30, 31, 32, and 33 as the book of consolation. And I want to talk about that just for a minute, Larry. This is important to me. Because in chapter 31, in those four chapters, actually, the book of consolation, God gave a lot of hope. In chapter 31, in verses 16 and 17, I heard the Lord say this to me. And so I wrote it down. Do not weep any longer. There's hope for your future. That's what he said. Consolation. After desolation, consolation. And then in chapter 32 and verse 40, God told me to tell everyone that he would, that he would and I quote, he would never stop doing good for my people. Those were God's words. All four chapters were filled with nothing but hope. But even God didn't seem to work very well because my people had a different idea from God of what doing good meant. Even the worst sort of trouble gives God opportunity to do good in people's souls. And Larry, my people just didn't understand that. They didn't get it. Hope kept me going. It's true that confusion, sadness, and pain nearly overwhelmed, came close to overwhelming my sense of hope several times in those 40 years. But all those difficult times took me to a crossroad. Either give up on God because he isn't good or stay with him because he is. That was my choice. I couldn't turn my back on God. I didn't want to turn my back on God. Well, Jeremiah, I appreciate all that. But what you're saying is raising another question that I'd love to hear you respond to. You certainly, if I'm reading the first chapter of your book correctly, and I think it's pretty obvious, you certainly were not filled with hope when God called you to be his prophet. You even told him you weren't the right man for the job. Why did you feel that way? I know you were young. Was it as simple as you were just a kid? But you didn't want to be part of this ministry. I don't want to do this. I can't speak for you. Yes, I'm too young. But what was going on in you? Why did you turn away from God's call? You didn't have much hope right then. Well, let me ask you a question, Larry. Have you ever felt adequate for any job that God gave you to do? Huh. Well, I think I supposed to say no, that I always felt inadequate and trusted the Lord, but I guess I have felt adequate at times. It made me think here. When people began buying my books and coming to hear me speak, I did get a little bit sold on myself, maybe a lot, and I remember thinking, I'm really pretty good at what I do. But it is true, Jeremiah, that the more people listened to me, the more a question arose in my mind, the more I worried that I might be leading people in a wrong direction. Maybe I really wasn't speaking the word of God. Maybe I was making it up to be popular or to get a hearing and people were listening. So I'm going to do more to get people to keep on listening to me. And I was scared that they weren't going to continue listening. And I didn't, I wasn't up to the job that you've given me to do God. That's how I felt back then. And I guess at the time, looking back on it, and I felt this way then, that I was suffering some from some background remains of neurotic insecurity. So that's what's going on in, um, in me, Jeremiah. Well, Larry, you, you sound like a psychologist. Well, I am. You don't approve? Well, I know God well enough to know that he's going to forgive you. Larry, you weren't, and you never were, neurotically insecure. But like me, you were realistically insecure. Listen to what I now know, and I want you to be aware of. I think you know it, but let me say it. Anyone who feels up to a job that God gives them is a blind, arrogant fool. Yeah, 
we're all equipped. We're all gifted in some way. But without the spirit alive in us, we can't do anything of value. When God called me, I had a terrifying sense of what I was in for. And I was scared to death of failing. I really was. Everyone ought to feel that way. And for me, things turned out far worse than I ever expected. Things didn't go well at all for me. I was scared of failing, and I did. I didn't feel qualified for the job, and I wasn't in my mind. Well, Jeremiah, no, no wonder um, you didn't get much of a hearing. No wonder you failed. I mean, look at the message God gave you to preach. He gave you a very, very negative message. You were telling them really tough stuff. You were telling them that he didn't, if they didn't repent, they were in, some, in for some pretty severe judgment. And it makes me think, Jeremiah, that Christians today, just like Judah back then, they want a more positive message, maybe some understanding of how to live, some principles in Scripture, some tips for Christian living on how to live that's going to make everything go pretty well in their lives. I think a lot of sermons and a lot of books and a lot of conferences are really all about that, not repent or there's trouble, but uh, repent regularly and draw close to God and you'll be near to God and nearness to God will be your only good. Um, I don't think that's what we're hearing today in our culture. I think we're hearing much more. Here's some biblical tips to make your life work. Well, I know the New Testament now and Paul warned Timothy, you know this, Larry, Paul warned Timothy that people are looking for teachers who will tell them whatever, remember his phrase, whatever their itching ears want to hear. Tell a man with cancer that he's healthy and that positive message is going to kill him. I'm afraid, Larry, you're sounding again a little bit like a psychologist. Let me tell you what I'm thinking here. A few psychologists who became Christians and are now up here with me have told me that what they called modern psychology, I don't even like the phrase, I think we're told to seek the ancient wisdom, the ancient paths, but modern psychology my psychologist friends tell me up here in heaven, modern psychology believes that trauma, what happens to people that's difficult, is the root problem beneath emotional struggles and that needs to be treated. The root problem is all the difficulties that have come your way. We've got to treat you, get a different perspective on it, and then you're going to be able to no longer have these emotional problems that the trauma is the underlying cause of. The Jews really had it bad in the wilderness, but their rebellion wasn't caused by trauma. Their rebellion was, called by, was caused by willfulness, not willingness, but willfulness. They were turning away from, from God. And that was happening in the wilderness, and it was happening in my time as well. Positive messages as we often hear what they are. Positive messages don't get at the root of the struggles. Was Paul being negative? When in Romans he taught, and I quote, that God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful people. Well, he's still doing that, Larry. He still is angry against sin, but he's gone to incredibly great lengths to redeem people. And that's the most positive message at all, that God is angry at our sin and repentance is required because it introduces to what I now understand, didn't quite get it back in my day when I was down there with you folks, but it introduces what I now understand to be the gospel of Jesus, exposing a problem that will ruin your life 
and to then reveal a plan that leads to everything the human heart most desires, I think that's good news. You called it negative. I don't think it's negative at all. I think it's the most positive message you can deliver. You got a problem. God has the solution. And the problem is your sin. God's going to punish Jesus in your place. You're going to be reconciled to relationship with God. And you're going to experience what you most desire once you know God and are living for him. My message was not negative. It was true, and it was full of hope. I hear you, Jeremiah, and I really do believe all that. I may be a psychologist, but I put the word Christian before that term, and I want that to mean more than psychology. I'm a Christian who believes the truth of the gospel. I hope that's true. But as I read about your miserable life, you just said that the good news is that you're going to be given by God the opportunity for what to, to enjoy what you most desire in life. That wasn't true of you. You didn't experience a life that you really most desired. So how do you respond to that little bit of confusion that I'm feeling? Well, I wasn't experiencing the life I most desired for many of my days. But at least I didn't experience my life to be what I most wanted. No, I really didn't. But in the middle of hard times, let me tell you my perspective on it now. In the middle of hard times, it seems like what you most want, what all of us, me, you, everybody else, in the middle of hard times, what you are aware of that you most want is relief, better times. But what I'm learning from being here for so many, so much time, we don't even use the word time up here, but it's then when life is tough, when life is painful, that you have a choice. Either you dig deep and discover your dependence on God, your appetite to know God, or you just hurt and you numb your soul and just get on with life as best you can. When life is going well, something I've observed, when life is going well, very few, even among sincere Christians, discover their core desire to know good, to know God. Well, I've come to realize, as I was experiencing so much difficulty, that deep truth is best discovered in suffering. And my people, back in the days when I was preaching in Judah, they were having some struggles, they were having difficulties, but they didn't dig deep. Remember when I told them, you've got to circumcise your soul, your heart. You've got to plow up the ground. You've got to crust around your heart. You're not aware of your deepest desire. Let your troubles lead you to digging deep to discover what you really want and this sounds strange, sounds like a negative message, but it's positive. What you really want is to know God in the middle of struggles because the end of the story is beyond imagination. Well, Jeremiah, again, I have a question or two because it seemed at one really hard time in your life, and there were many hard times, at one especially hard, timed, hard times, you apparently didn't want God at all. You know what I'm talking about? It's in Jeremiah 20. And, and Jeremiah, what you said, you told him that he had tricked you. God, you deceived me. Those are your words, Jeremiah. You deceived me, and you tricked me into following him into a miserable life that I really didn't want to experience the misery. Now, you are referring to what I said in chapter 20. That's right, Larry. But I think you're forgetting something. You're forgetting the difference between wanting to quit on God and facing how difficult it can be to not quit on God. Let me say that again. That strikes me as important. You've kind of missed the difference here. The difference between wanting to quit on God. I wasn't wanting to quit on God, but I was facing how difficult it sometimes can be 
to not quit on God. You know the story, Larry. After I, after I was speaking to before the temple, and Pasher was the temple priest, he listened to me preach about, you got to repent or there's going to be judgment. Babylon's going to come in and destroy Judah, destroy Jerusalem, and take all people back to Babylon. When, I, when he heard me preach that way, he really got mad. He thought I was preaching not for God at all. I, wasn't, I was preaching a negative message. That was his view. And so he whipped me, and he put me in stocks. And um, I really had the feeling at that time that God's failure to protect me from difficulties was not a good thing. I thought he was going to protect me, and he didn't seem to do that. But then, Jeremiah, um, this has always confused me a little bit. I've read this portion a lot of times. I've preached on it a bunch. I want to see if I got anything right here. After saying that life is tough, my friends are hating me, Pastor just beat me up and put me in the stocks. Life is really difficult. No one's listening to me. And after saying how difficult your life was, then later on, actually in verse 13 in Jeremiah 20, you talked about singing to the Lord. Why would you sing to a God that tricked you? I didn't understand the transition. You were really upset, and then you talked about singing to God. In that same chapter, why the dramatic shift? That's my question, Jeremiah. Well, don't forget verse 12 where I realized that God examines the heart and the mind. That's what I said. Now, do understand that the word for mind that I used in the Hebrew really refers to what's going on in your deepest parts. And I believe that God is searching beneath our deceitful hearts to make us aware of what is most deeply alive. And in that moment, as I realized that I was desperate in my life, I realized that God was searching in my mind, in the deepest part of my soul, my emotional life, my inner being, and I became aware that I really wanted God. I wanted to be with him, to know him, to speak his word to others. That became clear to me, and I was very willing to sing and to praise the Lord. And that's what happened in that part of the chapter that you're referring to. Yeah, but Jeremiah, the chapter goes on. You remember that. Because after hearing all that, in the next verse, you were crying out and you were saying, let me see if I get it right. You were saying, my life has been filled with trouble, sorrow, and shame. Everything is difficult. You said, cursed be the day that I was born. And you went on for four or five verses till the end of that chapter. And that's when you end up saying, well, my life has been filled with all these difficulties and I'm not very happy about it. Jeremiah, I don't get it. You're praising the Lord one minute, and the next minute, you're telling him that you wish you'd never been born. Well, I think I can tell you what was going on in me back then. In those words, when I said, cursed be the day I was born, my life was full of trouble, sorrow, and shame, I was acknowledging what every Christian nowadays needs to acknowledge, that following God is costly. Sometimes real pain and suffering going to come into your life. God's not going to protect you from it. But right after I allowed myself to feel the depths of the cost I, I, I had to pay, remember what happened? Here I'm singing to God, and then I'm talking about, but it's really, really hard. It's really difficult. And right after expressing that I wish I would never been born because the price to follow you is really so, so high. I'm willing to follow you, but the price is far more than I ever imagined. And after I said that, God spoke to me again, and I knew I wanted to obey, because in my soul, 
where he had just opened me up to realizing what was in it. I wanted to do what God wanted me to do. My deepest desire was to persevere and stay faithful, enduring whatever trials and emptiness of soul came into my existence. That was the chapter 21 when I went on being obedient to God. You might remember, Larry, my mind's going in a different direction here for a moment, but I've been talking to my friend Blaise Pascal. You've read him, haven't you? Because he spoke, one of his main, major themes that he and I have been chatting about quite a bit up here, he spoke of the fact that down on earth, we experienced greatness and wretchedness. The human nature has consisted of greatness and wretchedness. Now, I knew back in my days of ministering in Judah, that whatever greatness I could claim for my being lay entirely in knowing and serving God. That was the definition of my greatness. I'm an image-bearing person called by God to advance the story he's telling. That's great. And now I want to know now that I know Jesus, I didn't know him back in those days, but I sort of did. But now that I know Jesus, who was the greatest of all, qualified to redeem the world, but he knew the reality of wretchedness in his experience. He knew that in Gethsemane, in his anguish, and he knew that in Calvary, in his suffering. If we're going to follow Jesus, if you're going to follow Jesus, and all the people you talk with are going to follow Jesus, don't they realize that there's going to be Greatness, I'm actually, I'm actually part of the story God is telling. And sometimes I feel wretched because it's so hard. Nobody's listening and there's so much opposition. But I can tell you now, Larry, the end of the story, only greatness. Unworthy people living and loving in heaven's bliss. Jeremiah, I think I'm hearing you a little bit, but I have one last question. Are you comfortable being known as the weeping prophet? A lot of people have characterized you. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. It seems to me that you were the courageous prophet. What do you do with that? You too should be weeping. You should be weeping over the perversion of grace that's going on in the churches in your day. You should be weeping over a culture that has turned its back on God so often and a Christian culture that's turning themselves to a God who doesn't exist. There's perversions of grace that Jude warned you about. In my day and now in yours, a lot of people are following God, counting on his grace, which of course we're to do, but for what? Counting on his grace, not to form them like Jesus and all of his greatness and wretchedness of existence when he was down there but to make their lives unfold as they want things to go. That's what they're following God for. That's not following the true God. And I think that's cause for weeping. I hope you weep a lot for your culture, for some of your churches, for some of the teaching that's going on. Weep with the sorrow of God that is a price that he pays to pursue sinful people until we will weep no more when Jesus returns. Remember the words of David who said that weeping may last through the night, but joy comes in the morning. Larry, I've met Jesus, and I can tell you, all is well. Hang on to your hope. <sighs> well, that ends my conversation with Jeremiah and the four-part series on the life and ministry of Jeremiah is also now ended. I appreciate your listening. But as we've ended this four-part series, We've been thinking about it, and we are planning now another four-part series. It's going to begin next Saturday and go on the same time, every Saturday night at 6 o'clock Eastern time. 
But this is going to be a different series. I'm going to be suggesting how difficult times provide rich soil for the spirit to do his deepest work in our souls. The term spiritual formation has captured me. As a former psychotherapist, I'm now into being a spiritual director and understanding spiritual formation. And there's a perspective that isn't often heard on what it means to become spiritually formed in the middle of struggles and doubts and joys. What does it mean to be spiritually formed in a particular way? That's going to be my topic for the next, uh, the next four Saturday night sermons. I appreciate your listening. Dad, that, that was, that was so fun. Uh, this, these last four weeks, um, yeah, I, I really been looking forward to these Saturday nights and getting a chance to listen to you. And I, I was excited to hear what you were going to do as you wrap up Jeremiah. So thanks for doing that. And I'm thanks for agreeing to do, to do uh, four more of these. Well, one- it's kind of fun. I just figured that um, something has been on my mind for a long time that people that have come to my school of spiritual direction have been introduced to a little bit. And I want to develop it a lot more clearly, I hope, and pretty little, little go further with it in these next four talks. So I'm looking forward to that. Thank you. Well, I want to remind everyone that um, Larry also does a webinar monthly where we actually have brought a guest on the, the last series of webinars. We've, we've been calling them Listen In to Conversations That Matter. And we'd encourage you to go to largerstory.com backslash webinars and sign up for a webinar this Tuesday that we've got going on and, uh, um, and sign up for that and get a chance to listen to uh, dad and Jamie Rasmussen, senior pastor at Scottsdale Bible Talk. Would love to uh, have you all join us for that. Also want to remind everyone that uh, pre-orders are available now at a discounted rate for Larry's upcoming book, Waiting for Heaven. And um, we encourage you guys to go to largerstory.com as well and, uh, and place your order for that too. Dad, anything you want to say before we, we wrap it up? Well, um, yeah, I'm really grateful for all the folks that tune into this and let me share what I want to say, what I think the Lord's given me. And I believe it comes out of the scriptures. I sure hope it does. But I also want to give a little extra plug for the webinar coming up. Um, Jamie Rasmussen has been a close friend of mine for a number of years. He's a pastor of Scottsdale Bible Church, a, a huge church, but he doesn't see himself as a mega church pastor. That's what he is, but he doesn't see himself as some big shot in the Christian world. He really has a different attitude toward it. And we're going to be talking about, uh, about some things that he's been working on in, a, in his own thinking. Um, wh- wh- what do you do when God seems far away? How do you deal with that? And, uh, Lewis talks about that, Jamie talks about it, and we're going to talk about it in the next webinar. It might be an important time. I'm looking forward to conversation with Jamie. Oh, I'm looking forward to it as well. Everyone, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Um, we will hopefully see you on Tuesday, but we'll also hopefully see you again next Saturday. We've got one more series starting up, and then we'll see if we can, can convince Dad to continue, continue to do some of this Bible teaching for us. So thank you all. Have a great night, and everybody stay safe. Thanks for listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. To subscribe, visit LargerStory.com.